you have a notion that, or you have an idea that we should electrify everything. So one question is, why hasn't that happened? And another question is, is there a country you think can do that? Like one country, can Canada, Norway, or whatever, is there one country, like, or even China, which actually can electrify their country? And just to start these questions off, can you quickly explain the concept of understanding if you have like um, one gallon of gasoline, the equivalent in electricity, but maybe that's a great place to start to understand the need of electricity and yeah. The problem that we have in, in energy, one of the, we have many problems, but one of the problems we have in energy is that if I tell you that I'm gonna give you a hundred dollars, you probably think that's good, right? But I didn't tell you whether I'm going to give you 100 American dollars or 100 Jamaican dollars. Okay. And the same is true with energy. So if I'm going to give you 100 joules of energy, you probably think that's good. But I didn't tell you whether I was going to give you 100 joules of electricity or 100 joules of room temperature heat. They're both measured in joules, but they're like Jamaican dollars and, and American dollars. They're not worth the same just because they're measured in dollars. So heat and work are not, or, or thermodynamic work or electricity, which is readily convertible into mechanical energy or thermodynamic work is worth more than heat. Because when you convert heat to work, the second law has an exchange rate and the exchange rate depends on the temperature and other things, but it depends on the temperature. And so as a consequence of that, there's a lot of people who say, look how many joules we're getting from fossil fuels. Replacing that with electricity is impossible. There's too many joules. And then you look at it, it's like, yeah, but two thirds of the joules are wasted. Paul Martin is a global expert and builder of pilot and demonstration scale plants for the chemical process industries. In this episode, we cover Paul's upbringing and his passion for engineering. We go through Paul's opinion on hydrogen, electricity, space, and hopium, and we discuss what we should stop with, scale up, and invent in the ocean. Let's hear from our sponsors. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christophe Volnheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Your passion for engineering, where did it start? Is it from early days or does it evolve? So I had the good fortune to grow up with a man who was a genius who had a grade eight education. Uh, so this guy, my, my late father, uh, was a genius with machinery. He grew up on a farm. He was born in 1915. So he had me quite late in life. And uh, he grew up on a farm where they were plowing the fields with horses. And when he saw his first tractor and he realized that that thing could be fixed when it broke, you didn't have to shoot it, you know, and it never got tired and you didn't have to, uh, you didn't have to give it a break or, you know, let it stand in the shade or anything. You just worked it and it went where you pointed it he went yeah that's the future I'm, i want to i want to learn about these things and i want to learn how to fix them and 
schooling was difficult for them to afford and and uh so he did a correspondence course and became a diesel mechanic and but that guy by any stretch of the imagination would you know he could easily have undertaken a formal education under different times you know where, where he'd been really given a chance and so he was the kind of guy that would come home after looking he would you would see a piece of machinery and look at it and go, oh, that's how that works. And he would come home and build one out of scrap just to see if he could make one work. And so that's the environment I grew up in. I grew up with a lathe and a milling machine, you know, big, old World War II era machines in our basement and old worn out stuff, you know, that, that wasn't accurate, but it was remarkable what you could do with it if you knew what you were doing. And so that's the environment I grew up in. But it was always clear right from the beginning that I would get a formal education because I had access to it and I had the ability to do something with it. And so for me, the choice of chemical engineering was actually very deliberate because I loved chemistry, but I already had a background in mechanical and electrical engineering from mechanical from growing up in the environment I grew up in and electrical from hobby being a hobbyist. So chemical engineering was the aspect of engineering I knew the least about. I wasn't interested in civil uh, at all. So that it was a pretty easy choice for me. And I, it was a good fit. Like It just made, made perfect sense. So that's how I ended up being an engineer. And uh, yeah, it's, it's not good for everybody. Most of the engineers that I know or the people that I know that have educations as engineers here in Canada, they didn't end up working as engineers. Uh, you know, only about a third, in fact, it's less than a third of people with engineering degrees in Canada work as engineers. The other two thirds work in other things. And not all of them have a happy job, by the way. So we generate way, we generate and immigrate way more engineers in Canada than we can possibly use as engineers. And a lot of them end up having no, you know, it, it becomes the new liberal arts education, which is really disgusting to me, honestly. But from your lenses in your upbringing, did you find that you saw sort of raw talent from your father or was it more curiosity and curiosity le- leads to understanding and so forth? Or do you feel like there's a raw talent? Component? I, I, don't, I don't think that the two of them are separable. I think he had both. I think he had a, he had a curiosity about all sorts of things that led to him developing abilities. But he also had a, a very high native ability. I mean just conceptually his native ability was extremely good and yet the guy you you know reading and writing was difficult for him i don't know if he had a had a uh like he's certainly read well but i i think he might have had some kind of a learning disability that led to difficulty with writing a part of it i think honestly was the uh result of uh a lack of ability to spend time on schooling when he was young because they they just needed him to work. And the other part of it was that he was left-handed. Back in the days when they would punish people for being left-handed and make them write with their right hand. So, yeah, anyway, this is a, the, the world is a very different place. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's so interesting. So I'm asking this career question because I find it fascinating to hear your reflections since you actually posted you retired. I know you work a lot with other projects, but you sort of retired in some yeah, sense. Yeah, I retired into private consulting. I'm an, I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur now, yeah, but I've been an entrepreneur since I was a kid because <laughs> yeah. that's the other thing I got from my dad. My dad, my dad uh, he went into business with somebody early in life as uh, basically a, a, a partnership. And the guy rapidly realized that his partner my my father was making him a lot of money but he was then jealous of my dad, my dad and said hey you're just an employee i'm just going to pay you a wage and my dad said yeah no <laughs> that's, that's not going to work for me so he went off and worked for other people and then eventually set up his own business and when he set up his own business he realized that you know being as close to the customer as possible was the place where the money was. There weren't all these middlemen in the middle taking it away from you. So that was one thing I learned from him is get as close to the customer as you can, because that's where the money's being made. And yeah, he made enough money in 
running his business for 10 years to retire and he lived to 100 and still had money. Uh, but he never retired for a minute. He always had something on the go, even if it was just making stuff that he made a dollar an hour doing. It was just for fun. And uh, yeah, he, uh, I, I learned from that. So yeah, I've been doing, I've been an entrepreneur since I was a kid doing little bits of business here and there. I've had a private consulting business since before I started with my last company that was 26 years ago that I just retired from. And now I have an incorporated business uh, called Spitfire Research that I offer consulting through. And it, it honestly, it's doing doing really well. I'm, I'm doing more work than I probably want to. Uh, so the retirement made sense. Very, very fascinating. So I have so many fun themes coming up, but I just wanted to ask you, since you've been involved with so many different projects, plants, I mean, you build stuff with teams, of course. Do you have like a sort of Manhattan project you worked on that you're so proud of today? Or is everything sort of connected? Or do you have like an sort of... Oh, oh no, I, I mean, I've got... I, I wouldn't say I've got like the project that defined my career, but the one I think that proves the value and usefulness of the business that I'm in the, the, the best example is probably the Voices Bay Nickel project. So this was a discovery that was made actually by a couple of geologists who were working kind of under contract with a, a guy who is a very, he's a very rich man, but he's kind of a guy with a very colorful and interesting history. So this guy's name is Robert Friedland, AKA Toxic Bob, who, um, runs a company called uh, Ivanhoe Resources, I think it's what it's called. And anyway, uh, the story of that is there's a fascinating book that's well worth reading about it that was written by uh, Jackie, uh, Jackie Lawson, I think it might be. Anyway, somebody in Newfoundland. And it tells the story of this discovery and what went on with Bob Friedland. But what ended up happening is that there was this mine discovered in northern Labrador, which needed to, the material that was mined there needed to be processed to finished metal in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, or the mining permits wouldn't be granted. Because the people of Newfoundland and Labrador were really tired of Easterners or foreigners or whatever, people from wherever coming in, taking their resources and leaving them with nothing paying them a pittance, you know, a few jobs and whatever. So they decided, no, this is going to be a major employer in the province because these resources are ours. And if Inco didn't want to do it, tough. Somebody else would. Rocks weren't going anywhere, which is very brave and smart decision on the part of the people in Newfoundland and Labrador, in my opinion. But what this led to was that they needed a processing plant specifically for that specific ore body. And that led to the need for a pilot and demonstration scale program over a period of many years to figure out how to monetize this 30 years worth of, or 30 plus years worth of resource that, that was found there. And so our company was engaged, not just in designing and building the pilot unit, but also part of the demonstration scale unit. And that project, so that project was scaled up at a hundred times the throughput twice. So the pilot plant was scaled up to a hundred times the throughput for a demo plant. The demo plant was scaled up to a hundred times the throughput for the commercial facility. And that commercial facility was built in 2014 and it's been running since it was many billions of dollars. So the fact that we were in the middle of that uh, program was really interesting. And that pilot plant did everything. It started with ore concentrate and it made finished nickel and copper and it made a cobalt uh, ion exchange solution that you could actually electrowing cobalt from if you wanted to. And the demo plant would just did everything that the pilot plant did except at a hundred times the throughput. And at each stage of the scale up, there were whole portions of the plant that were discovered to be necessary. We're not talking about missing a pump or a tank here. We're talking about whole sections of a factory that people going into the project didn't know they needed and they had to be added to the commercial design. <laughs> so it proved that it demonstrated that if you do this stuff wrong, <clears throat> you, you go too fast, 
you're going to end up with a plant that doesn't start up on time. It's going to chew up hundreds of millions of dollars just lying there doing nothing while you solve all these problems and you're going to run out of money. And that's what happened to a whole bunch of projects that didn't do the pilot and demonstration scale plans. So it just proved the necessity of what I do for a living. And it's really awesome. That's incredible. Do you also have like a horror story or is it too bad to share publicly? <laughs> I can tell you a funny story. It's not a horror story. It's just a funny story. <laughs> the, the, so we, my company, uh, company that I'm now retired from did projects um, for all kinds of major, you know, all the major oil and chemicals and materials companies in the world. But there were a couple holdouts that had, either a weird culture that didn't want them to share anything outside because they were worried about propriety and secrets or whatever. And, and, or, or they had their own internal group that just did all that. And it managed to survive the various rounds of, you know, uh, accountant driven uh, cost cutting that chopped away those groups in the late uh, early eighties from most of those major companies. And one of those holdout companies, and I won't mention their name, uh, makes a whole bunch of products and there's a bunch of different divisions. And those guys were a holdout. They, they weren't doing business with us. And we knew them for years. And then we knew this particular guy. And he called us up one day and I was sitting in the office with one of our founders. And this guy calls up and he said, hey, guys, I, I did something stupid. I invented something that's useful for my company. And now I'm being punished for my stupidity by being forced to make evaluation quantities of this material. So me and my whole group are shackled to our lab benches, cranking out small quantities of this stuff because my company finds it valuable. And so we're under non-disclosure agreement and everything. So we said, hey, what is it? And he says, I can't tell you. What? You can't, we're under NDA. He says, yeah, I can't tell you what it is. So is it legal? <laughs> is it legal? You know, he says, yeah, yeah, it's not meth. It's not meth. You know, <laughs> it's like, okay, okay. It's legal. Good. We, we know it's legal. It's not some, you know, uh, contraband material. Oh, okay. Well, how the heck would we do a project? And he says, well, what it is, is proprietary, but I can tell you all the steps and I can tell you, you know, if you want to know the density, I can tell you the density. If you want to know the viscosity, I can tell you the viscosity. So we can work it out that way. You just don't need to know what it is. Okay, well, we can try it. So we actually did this whole project for this guy. And I eventually figured out that we were making a nanomaterial, but I don't know what it was used for or even what, you know, not what product, much less what division of the company this thing was being used for. They were so good at holding their propriety, ultimate unit, that we had to call it Project X, you know, because we had no idea what it was making. It was making X. So, yeah, yeah, it was fun, fun business. Did another project where a client was uh, involved in some kind of a race with somebody else to potentially buy into what looked like an exciting new process technology that had been patented, but they weren't hundred percent certain that the patent was valid and the thing worked. And it was so complicated that they decided to just go in and do a pilot plant. So I took this pilot plant for them. It was super high risk, very little data available. We just built this thing on a, on a crash course. This is a really good customer. And um, we built this unit and they ran it and it never made a gram of product. And they were delighted. So I had a delighted client that ran a project that never made a gram of product because it avoided the investment in something that was worthless. It turned out that, you know, the guy patented it, but a patent isn't proof of function. A patent is just the right to make the broken thing, you know, the, the square wheel exclusively for 20 years. That's all it is. And people get screwed up with that all the time. They think, oh, well, if it's patented, it must work. <laughs> oh, lots of things are patented that don't work. So this was one of them. And they were, they were delighted. And they came back to us actually with a project 10 times the size later because it was a bunch of steps. And a couple of the steps worked. They just didn't work to make the product that they wanted to make. But they were able to turn those steps into something that worked and made made them uh, made them something else that they were excited in. And so we got an even bigger project out of them later as a result of doing a really good job making a project that never made a growth product, which was just like, what a weird business I'm in. 
you know, you know, it's a great business to be in where success can be turned, success can be turned out of failure, you know, it's pretty awesome. But it's, it's so interesting because when you mention patents, it's like now it's gone even wilder because I think like Amazon makes patents because they get free marketing. So if Amazon patents something crazy, Bloomberg writes about this is the new, you, they have like this crazy like thing flying around. They have many concepts. And in my mind, they're almost just making it because they need free PR. It's like, who doesn't want that, right? Straight. I didn't, in, I didn't invent this term, but I have been using a term uh, very loudly on LinkedIn, which is my favorite platform because Twitter still kind of scares me and I'm still getting used to it. But I've been using this term, hopium, and, and hashtagging it. And that's exactly what people generate. They generate, what, what they do is they take people's hope, often, you know, hope in, in, in a future that's desirable, and they pervert it in such a way, they, they weaponize it, they turn it into a drug that is used to basically uh, shut off either you know the, the investor or the government's uh, rational faculties and disconnect them from the, the thing that controls whether or not they open up their wallet and give them money. And there's so much hopium dealing and pushing and selling going on in the world right now. It's just mad. And some of it is related to the thing that I'm most interested in, which is decarbonization you know, decarbonizing our, our, our economy, which I think is an existential uh, thing that we have to get on doing. And I've been disappointed through my entire career, all 31 years of it, that we've done so little about it so far. I figured we'd have had it licked by now. And we could have, honestly, had we been serious, but we weren't serious. So anyway, there's so much hopium dealing and pushing uh, in relation to decarbonization. And it's just, you know, people selling ideas that are just foolishness, that make no thermodynamic sense, that make no economic sense. And yet, and, and people in the same conference selling the diametric opposite. I'll give you an example. Of what so you get these people that think that they're going to have giant amounts of renewable electricity in excess of what the market will need. And that's likely to be true in the future. And it's, it's actually a good thing. It's something we want to encourage uh, because it'll drive down the prices of electricity, renewable electricity, and, and hence permit the decarbonization to happen when we get smart about how to use those things. But these people are worried that they, the local grid, for instance, won't be able to use their electricity as electricity. And they, they think storage is expensive. So instead, what they want to do is they want to electrolyze water to make hydrogen uh, to, uh, to move the, uh, the product to where people need it, because that might be easier than getting the grid rebuilt or something. I'm, I'm not sure exactly why, because it would mean that you'd have to build pipelines that don't exist and so on, which is no easier than upgrading the grid, but fine. Well, they, then they realize that there are no pipelines and they can't ship it by truck and liquefying it to ship it by sea is kind of insane. So what they, what they start thinking about is, well, what if I get some CO2 from somewhere and I run this reaction that's called methanation, where I take CO2 and I react it with hydrogen and I make methane and water, like worthless water uh, and a lot of heat that's being produced in a place where I have excess energy because I have electricity in excess already so the heat's wasted too uh so they want to run methanation reactions to make methane because then they can shove that into the natural gas grid and and people will buy it okay so you see the story right we have excess energy and then we're going to make hydrogen but no hydrogen's no good so we're going to make methane and then over so that's over here that's in this place and over there there are these guys that have biogas, you know, from anaerobic digestion of animal waste or waste food or whatever. And they have biogas and they want to get it to market, but nobody seems to want it because it's got all this CO2 in it. So they think, hmm, nobody seems to want our methane. How about we make hydrogen out of it? You know, because it'll be renewable hydrogen. There's no fossil CO2 associated with it. We'll make hydrogen and we'll just vent all the CO2 or whatever we'll, we'll do with it. So in one place, you've got people that have methane that's renewable 
but can't get it to market. So they want to make hydrogen because hydrogen's sexy for some reason or another. Then you got other people over here that realize that hydrogen might be sexy, but it's kind of worthless if you can't get it to somebody that wants to buy it. And they're doing this and they're both selling investors on these concepts and they're mutually exclusive. Either one is dumb or the other's dumb or they're both dumb, right? So it, yeah, this is what I mean by hopium dealing and pushing and, and whatever. And if it was private money, I'd be 100% behind it, right? But it's public money. It's government money that's being siphoned up. But it's so interesting because I read your article about hopium. I, I really enjoyed it. So just a, another part I wanted to ask about that subject is that you have like a line. I think it's like Edison. You have like yep. chasing the perfect battery is a fool's journey. And I think and maybe, a catch penny and, and a, a natural tendency to exploit the you know stupidity of human beings or something like that for profit. And this is the reality of batteries too. I mean, batteries are amazing. I love batteries. Batteries are super efficient. And, and the invention of the lithium ion battery was great. But the thing that really made the lithium ion battery amazing was the fact that everybody had one of these, you know, a cell phone that needed a battery. Uh, and as a consequence of that need, they were willing to pay $3,000 a kilowatt hour for the initial batteries because they, they give your cell phone enough life to make it useful, right? And that carried them to the scale necessary to get their cost per kilowatt hour down low enough that you could imagine doing things like grid storage or, or electric vehicles with them. But the problem with batteries is what do you hear in the media every day, every day, a new invention that's gonna revolutionize batteries and then you never hear about it again. Why? Because it's not a revolutionary thing. It's some lazy journalist didn't bother to ask the question. Okay, so this battery, what's the cycle life? What's the cost per kilowatt hour? What's the fire risk? What's the current density? What's the energy density per unit volume? Nobody's asking the questions because the people that are involved in doing the journalism work aren't journalists. And even the ones that are journalists aren't scientists. So they don't know what questions to ask. So but, but I, they I basically... went to... But basically, this cocktail is like the fuel for greenwashing, right? And greenwashing is. is like the number one story globally. Yeah. So you have a huge problem from the engineer standpoint or the math guy with this like wave of greenwashing. So how mm -hmm. do you go through the noise and separate good math from bad math, essentially? We, so a bunch of us coalesced around the problem of the overselling of hydrogen. Okay, so hydrogen, see, hydrogen is one of these things that's really interesting because it's at the same time, it, it's an existentially important decarbonization problem that we must solve if we want to keep eating and not destroy the climate. Okay, so we have to make hydrogen to make ammonia because we need to feed half the people on the earth that we wouldn't feed without the ammonia as a fertilizer. And right now we make all of that ammonia from hydrogen that we make from natural gas or coal with no carbon capture because that's cheap and the atmosphere is a free sewer. So hydrogen is an essential thing for us to fix as a decarbonization problem in the world. And it's a decarbonization problem right now that's basically, it's bigger than the aviation industry. It's bigger than shipping it, as, a as a carbon source, just making hydrogen. And yet, at the same time, you've got people pushing hydrogen as a decarbonization solution to all kinds of problems like air transport and trucks and as a home heating fuel and various other things, a way to store electricity. And this idea is being pushed well past its limits, you know, the limits of sense. And so a bunch of us, a bunch of people who didn't have any uh, skin in the game money-wise, but had the knowledge to know that this pushing was going on, that this wasn't real, that this was mostly, you know, people that were looking at a future in which their business was gone, like, for instance, selling natural gas. In the future, there won't be anybody selling natural gas because we won't be able to emit the CO2 from burning all of that natural gas, which isn't natural, it's fossil, right? 
Uh, so those people need to sell something, ergo hydrogen. And they're pushing it. And the same thing with, the, you know, there are a lot of earnest people interested in decarbonization that are making wind turbines and electrolyzers, and fuel cells, and so on. And they see a business opportunity of selling the idea of using hydrogen as a fuel. And so their, their economic interests are very clear, but the real question is, is this in the interest of decarbonization? And the answer is yes, if it's done right, and no, if it's done wrong. And the done wrong part is really simple. Are you using hydrogen as a fuel? Then you're doing it wrong. <laughs> so anyway, a bunch of us coalesced around this idea that hydrogen was being pushed inappropriately and that public money was being used inappropriately to fund it. And we formed something called the Hydrogen Science Coalition. I'm one of the founding members. And we're all people that were rare birds. We know what we're talking about and we don't have any money in it, okay? We're not frothing at the mouth saying hydrogen, 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 because we're making a buck from it. And that, that, that's hard to find, but we're just basically standing there saying, Lord, we're, we're these people, here are our credentials. Journalists, please, if you get a story about hydrogen, don't just talk to the shell and the, you know, the hydrogen council and the guys frothing at the mouth about this stuff. Talk to us and we'll give you the other side of the story and we'll help you make sense of it. So that's what we can do about it. Yeah, it's a good thing I'm talking to you now, at least. I'll do my little help here. But uh, I think just in to close the hydrogen chapter, can you just yeah. also use the, the, um, the Swiss army knife analogy? Because maybe people, <laughs> but I think that's so oh, relevant, yeah. right? Because this is so beautiful. Are, yeah. I, I love it when things work out like this. So people have been using this and they've been saying that hydrogen is the Swiss army knife of energy, right? Because it's so versatile. And it turns out that they're absolutely right. Hydrogen is the Swiss army knife of energy. It's too expensive and it's pretty much useless for just about every application you might put it to, except in an emergency. So when you're going camping, it's nice to have a Swiss army knife because it it sort of works as a knife and it sort of works as a screwdriver and maybe a maybe a, a corkscrew or this or that, right? But it's not the optimal tool for any of those tasks. And if you were at home, you wouldn't reach for your Swiss army knife to do any of those things with it because you've got a better knife and a, a better corkscrew, you know, and a much better screwdriver that doesn't like mangle your hand every time you slip off the screw. So th this is hydrogen as an energy tool, it's like the Swiss army knife. It's expensive, it's bulky. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Maybe you'll resort to it in an emergency, but that's it. It's perfect, it's the perfect analogy. But the greatest thing about that is that it's also easy enough to understand that people who don't dive into the science can run with the idea and go on stages, global stages and tell this is future, right? Because yeah, well, sort see, of yeah, we, yeah, there's a lot of memification of information in this in these this age where people have an attention span of about five seconds because of their phone, right? Okay, you can blame the lithium ion battery for that too. It enabled the, the destruction of human attention. But anyway, whatever. The 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 thing is that um, there's a lot of memification of information, and the hydrogen people have been super good at it. So the Swiss army knife business and the colors of hydrogen, which is another, you know, pile of total crap. Uh, you know, the, these colors of hydrogen, there is only one color of hydrogen, 98.7% of the hydrogen in the world is blacker than black. It's black hole black. Okay. It's 30% blacker in CO2 emissions per joule of energy than the fossils it was made from. And it might be 50% worse or 70% worse depending on what you make it up. So, and depending on whether you take the methane emissions into account as well. And so there is no green hydrogen in the world. That's, that's an idea. That's something you can do if you can find a way to afford it one day. But the reality is almost all the hydrogen in the world, like to the point of basically all the hydrogen in the world is made from fossils without carbon capture. So this colors business is just obfuscation. And the same thing is true, like I said, with the Swiss Army knife analogy. So smart people have to learn how to memify things. And so I memified this whole hydrogen thing. I've got a Drake, you know, and I live in Toronto. So Drake, you know, he doesn't live very far from me. Uh, and um, although he's got a much nicer house than I do. But anyway, uh, in the one picture, 
Drake's going like this, you know, and it says hydrogen as a fuel. Drake goes like this. And then the next one, Drake's going like this, and it says, you know, green hydrogen to replace black hydrogen. And it's, just, it's that simple. Hydrogen as a fuel, oh, bad idea. But green hydrogen to replace black hydrogen, that's awesome. You know, that's what we need to be focusing on because we need that to live. And very, I mean, time is going so fast and I have so many topics. So I will just try to maneuver it all the way here. But let's go to electricity because you have a notion that, or you have an idea that we should electrify everything. So one question is, why hasn't that happened? And another question is, is there a country you think can do that? Like one country, can Canada, Norway, or whatever, is there one country, like, or even China, which actually can electrify their country? And just to start these questions off, can you quickly explain the concept of understanding if you have like um, one gallon of gasoline, the equivalent in electricity, but maybe that's a great place to start to understand the need of okay. electricity. And, yeah. yeah, so I have a good analogy for this too. So the problem that we have in, in energy, one of the, we have many problems, but one of the problems we have in energy is that if I tell you that I'm going to give you $100, you probably think that's good, right? But I didn't tell you whether I'm going to give you 100 American dollars or 100 Jamaican dollars, okay? And the same is true with energy. So if I'm going to give you 100 joules of energy, you probably think that's good. But I didn't tell you whether I was going to give you 100 joules of electricity or 100 joules of room temperature heat. They're both measured in joules, but they're like Jamaican dollars and, and American dollars. They're not worth the same just because they're measured in dollars. So heat and work are not, or, or thermodynamic work or electricity, which is readily convertible into mechanical energy or thermodynamic work, is worth more than heat. Because when you convert heat to work, the second law has an exchange rate. And the exchange rate depends on the temperature and other things, but it depends on the temperature. And so as a consequence of that, there's a lot of people who say, look how many joules we're getting from fossil fuels. Replacing that with electricity is impossible. There's too many joules. And then you look at it, it's like, yeah, but two thirds of the joules are wasted. <laughs> because they're provided as heat and what we really need is work. And so actually the problem is about between a half and a third as bad as people think. So converting everything to electricity, yeah, we're going to do it. We, we must do it. It's imperative. And when I say everything, there's always exceptions. Okay. So we're not going to convert jet aircraft to electric. We're not going to, but we don't need to because there's another alternative and that's biofuels. So we're going to use biofuels for jet aircraft. And if we can't make enough biofuels, maybe we'll use electricity to make hydrogen to increase biofuels yields. So we can get more biofuels to, to be able to do that. But largely, the solution is to electrify everything. Now, you'd look at Canada. Canada looks to be a good place to do this because, for one thing, most of Canada, not all of it, the, the, the fossil fuel parts of Canada, Alberta and Saskatchewan, are still making a lot of electricity from natural gas and coal. But the rest of the country, the place where most of us live actually, 75, 80% of Canadians, live in places where our grid is already totally decarbonized. Like, I mean, Ontario where I live, our, our uh, CO2 emissions from uh, electricity generation are 40 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour on a year round average. And that's just from a small amount of natural gas that we burn in order to balance our wind power, okay? But the thing is that we use an awful lot of heat because we're a cold country, like where you live. So we, we use a lot of natural gas in order to stay warm. And natural gas, fossil gas, is so cheap that electrifying heating is going to be a very challenging business. It's gonna cost a lot per kilogram or ton of CO2 emissions avoided. And I wrote an article about this too. You can, I ran the numbers for my own house, put it all out there. Bore people to death, it's full of numbers. And in fact, there's a warning at the beginning. Warning, if you suffer from arithmetic anxiety, don't read this article, spare yourself because it's full of math. 
But the point is that I ran the numbers for myself and the cost per ton of CO2 emissions abated to convert my house to run on something other than natural gas for heating is way, way too high for me to even think about. And I'd be much smarter to buy an electric vehicle instead because an electric vehicle will actually give me a lower total cost of ownership than a gasoline vehicle. And any CO2 emissions benefit that I give to the world, I'm giving to them for free. In fact, it has a negative cost to me. Can you imagine that, especially today? I mean, I, I don't know what prices are doing in Norway, but in Canada, a liter of gasoline is worth an awful lot of money right now. And um, as a consequence, electric vehicles look wonderful because we don't make our electricity from fossil fuels here. <laughs> so our electricity prices are dead stable and fuel prices are going way up. Right. So I love higher oil prices. They make me happy. Nothing will make decarbonization happen faster than $200 a barrel oil. It'd be awesome. And if it sags to 100 bucks again, backfill that 100 bucks a barrel with carbon taxes and give the money back to people. Don't even, that government doesn't even need to keep it. It just needs to give it back to them, punish them at the pump. Okay. And then do what we do in Canada. We have this clever carbon tax in Canada. It's so smart. We take all the money, we put it in a pile. We take 10% off and we use that for public infrastructure decarbonization. But the 90% that's left, we divide the money by how many people paid and we give it all back to them at the average. So let's say that you're a poor person here living at Jane and Finch in Toronto in a subsidized housing. You know, you live in multi-unit housing that's very efficient. You take public transit everywhere because you can't afford a car. Your emissions are very low. Okay. And you get the average back. So you actually get more money back than you paid in tax. Your life gets better. But let's say that you're let's say you're great, okay, and you live in a whatever thirty thousand square foot house, and you drive in a drive a big car, and you've got a place up in the Muskokas for a cottage and whatever. You pay a lot of money in carbon tax, but you've got all the money in the world to invest in more insulation, better efficiency, an electric car, whatever it takes in order to make your tax burden lower. So it's a perfect system. It's really good, and it's very well supported by the Canadian public. But I feel like coming from Norway, I feel like we're almost cheating because we are few people here and we have great hydropower. And how can you beat hydropower in terms of like it's renewable, it's like great efficiency? I don't know. It's the only way to beat hydropower. Is it going nuclear? But then again, you have these politicians. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's qualify. In a cold climate, hydropower is really awesome. In a warm climate, hydropower generates a lot of methane. Okay. So, in fact, I'm working with a company that's working on cleaning up the methane emissions from hydropower in warm climates, which is quite interesting work. But uh, that's one of my private clients that I'm dealing with. But the the um, and they have clever ideas, too, by the way. Anyway, the the uh, hydropower here in Canada is mostly cold climate hydropower. So our methane emissions are very low. And in Ontario, where I live, we have a lot of nuclear. But we know something about nuclear. We know that nuclear is adequately safe. Okay, we've never had an accident, not one loss of life. Uh, the power is safer than anything. I mean, it's safer than wind. More people have fallen off wind turbines and been injured, killed, than um, have been killed in the nuclear power industry in in, uh, in Ontario. And it's also very low greenhouse gas emission power, right? And it's dispatchable. These are all good things. But what it isn't is cheap. It's not cheap and it's not quick to build. And by the way, making them smaller is not going to fix either of those problems. It's going to make it more expensive. So nuclear, it's, you know, the way I've always said it is that if you think you can afford nuclear, you should build it. We're not going to. We know better. <laughs> We're not building any new ones. We, we put out a tender in 2013 in Ontario to twin our Darlington nuclear power plant, which is a really big plant. The bids came back so astronomically high that everybody said, yep, we're done with that. We're not doing that anymore. By the way, we're refurbishing our existing Darlington plant right now. The refurbishment cost is the same as what the plant cost to build. It's $13 billion just to refurbish the plant to keep it running another 20 or 30 years. And that's a good expenditure of money because we're already in. 
you know, as they say, in for a penny, in for a pound. But is, is nuclear sort of then sort of the most difficult task at hand? Because you see so many countries doing, have different strategies and maybe both sides have great arguments. So is it fair to say that nuclear actually is a very hard trade-off because the investment's going in and whether you already have the infrastructure and culture of building it? I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll explain to you why I think nuclear is done. It's really simple. Nuclear's value proposition is the fueling cost is almost zero, okay? Uranium costs nothing. But the cost per kilowatt hour of uranium in a nuclear power plant is almost nothing. The value proposition for nuclear, however, is that you have to make as many kilowatt hours as you possibly can because if you don't make as many kilowatt hours as you possibly can, Every kilowatt hour costs too much as a result of the enormous capital cost not being spread out over as many kilowatt hours as possible. So the way nuclear power plants are operated is pedal to the metal, you know, running fast, hard, high output capacity, high capacity factor. And then they sell this idea to people, oh, look, nuclear is really good. It has a high capacity factor, which is nonsense. I mean, the reason that nuclear has a high capacity factor is that the plants are slow and difficult to modulate. And because you never want to turn them down because otherwise every kilowatt hour gets more expensive. So the big problem for nuclear is it doesn't play well with wind and solar that are cheaper. I mean, wind and solar are way cheaper than nuclear. And so if somebody comes in and eats half of nuclear's prepaid lunch, Every kilowatt hour that nuclear makes just got twice as expensive, and they're already too expensive. So forget it. Nuclear's done. Done. Finished. That's, that's very interesting because so many countries are gearing up nuclear because oh, of yeah, absolutely. terrible situation. You know, if Europe, you've got a totalitarian regime or you've got a regime where you know government and industry are kind of hand in hand and people are leading the, the public off uh, in whatever direction they wish, you can get away with it, right? I mean, that's how it happened in Ontario. We, now in Ontario, let's be fair, in the 1970s, when these nuclear power plants were being built, 60s and 70s, the alternative was coal. I mean, the choice was nuclear or killing people. And guess what? People thought, well, maybe the nuclear will kill people. Well, it didn't. It killed nobody. And the coal would have killed hundreds of thousands of people prematurely. So guess what? It was a great, I don't care what the damn electricity cost. It saved people's lives. But guess what? We've got alternatives now. It's not a choice between killing people and having cheap power or using nuclear and not killing people, but having expensive power. Our choices now are use nuclear and have it be expensive, but dispatchable. So we can have electricity anytime we want. Or be smarter about when we use electricity, don't kill anybody, and use renewables when they're available. And if you need it when, you, when it's not available, now you're paying a little bit more money because it's coming to you out of storage. Makes sense. I, have, I want to switch gear a bit. I want, I want to go to the ocean space a bit, and I want to have like three subjects. What's to, what should we stop doing in the ocean? What should we scale up? And what should we invent or 10x? So if you start with what need what needs to stop, I have some examples. We can take oil, gas, overfishing, pollution. Is there anything you say like stop now or drastically stop with any of these things? I mean, of course, pollution needs to stop pretty soon. Well, yeah. Or I mean, it, it's a matter of uh, it's a matter of priorities, right? So the here's the myth that I'd like to dispel. There's this myth, and it's a very popular myth, that Western countries, developed nations like mine and yours, are generating plastic waste, and it's ending up in the ocean. So that's a myth. That's not happening. When you look at where the, the macro plastic in the oceans is coming from, it's directly traceable to two things. Fishing, the fishing industry, the industrial fishing industry, which loses lines and nets and traps at an alarming rate. And those things cause a lot of damage to the ecosystem and, they, and that really needs to be regulated. And the other thing is basically poverty. So emissions resulting from 
a lack of sanitation along 10 rivers in Asia and Africa because the people there have other priorities like staying fed and, and housed and waste collection and disposal is kind of an afterthought. That's where the macroplastic in the ocean is coming from. And then the question is, well, what about the microplastic? And the thing about microplastic is it really, you know, people have looked hard and with very few exceptions where the issue isn't the plastic itself, but something in the plastic. And one example of that being rubber uh, wear. So when you, when you have tires in cars, the rubber particles were being found in streams and it was affecting fish, but it wasn't the rubber. It was an additive, an antioxidant in the rubber that was actually causing the fish uh, to be impacted. And so by simply changing the formulation of the rubber, you can eliminate that environmental hazard. It's not the rubber, it's the additives. So anyway, the, the, the thing that I would say to people is I don't think that microplastic is really all that big a deal. And I don't think that it's a high priority. And the very last thing we should do is that dumb thing where you try to scoop up plastic from the surface of the ocean with big nets. You know, this, this whatever ocean cleanup thing, that's just dumb, okay? That's dumb, dumb, dumb. The thing to do is to, you know, if you're gonna put some kind of collection, you put it at the, at the mouths of the rivers or better still, you don't have people dump crap onto the side of the road and wash into the ocean so but, but they started actually I, I looked up ocean cleanup and they actually started going into rivers instead before it goes into the ocean maybe it's a better it makes idea. a lot more sense yeah that makes a lot more sense but the thing that makes even more sense is make sure that people in the world have deposit return so nobody buys something like and i know you guys do that in norway and we do it in some provinces in canada for some things and not in others so we're not because we have a federal system here so some provinces do things that are smart and others don't and anyway but the oil and gas oil and gas we have to stop oil and gas you know the oil and gas that we'll need in the future we need about a quarter of it to 15 percent of it for applications like chemicals and plastics and the like and that stuff we'll get from terrestrial locations. We don't won't need to do it offshore anymore. That stuff can stay there for the next thousand years until people get desperate enough for it for their materials and plastics needs in the future that they're willing to go offshore again. We don't need to do that for another thousand years. We've got enough Saudi oil, you know, low lift cost, light and sweet, you know, and they're going to be desperate to sell it to anybody. They'll be selling it for ten dollars a barrel. Uh, so it won't really be, be a big problem. We'll, we'll have all we'll need for plastics and materials. All we got to do is stop burning it because burning it's dumb. Mendeleev, you know, the father of the periodic table, he and I agree about something. And that is, he said that burning petroleum is like keeping warm in your house by burning banknotes in the kitchen stove. And I agree with him completely. That, that material is precious. It's finite. It's used for purposes that literally save human lives and we're burning it future generations are going to look back at us and say you guys are stupid like how could you be so dumb it's kind of like me looking back on the people in the you know late 1600s early 1700s where they had 500 year old trees in quebec and ontario and they chopped them down and just burned them because they wanted farmland Definitely. If you go to the, what needs to scale up, I don't have so many examples. I think personal, personally, aquaculture should be, should be scaled up because I don't see any other um, possibilities. Yeah, my, my father-in-law would agree with you. And, and he's actually a critic of aquaculture and a supporter of aquaculture when done right. And so he's a salmon fisherman, uh, is, so a sport fisherman. And he's seen damage caused to the salmon sport fishery by farming of salmon in, in improperly and the spread of disease and other other issues. And so he he is also, though, a very pragmatic person, a very well-educated person. And he understands that in order to provide protein to people in the world that need it, aquaculture is a good way to do it, but there's right and wrong ways to do aquaculture. So as long as you do aquaculture right, I don't have a problem with it. But then again, I don't have an ethical problem with eating animals. There are lots of people who do so. Uh, and I'm, I'm not casting judgment on them one way or another. I, I eat animals and you know, I'm a member of the other PETA, you know, 
there are there's the people the people for the ethical treatment of animals and i belong to the people uh, enjoying tasty animals so what about offshore wind and maybe i see some people put solar oh, offshore wind is ocean. a win-win I, yeah. I've seen studies where uh, people lo actually looked at the environmental impact of offshore wind, and they found out that the wind turbine bases actually provide um, uh, provide habitat for anchor species like mussels. So uh, the the environmental impact of the wind turbines offshore is actually negative. Like is it like there isn't any? <laughs> so that's you actually pretty good. Scale, you, do you just want to scale it to maximum? Or... Oh yeah, as many as you can, and then fifty percent more than that. But should the, you put? But, but should you should you have solar panels on the ocean? For me, it just sounds strange. But I see so many. Oh, companies. solar panels on the ocean are dumb because the ocean is. I mean, anybody that's lived near the ocean, and I haven't lived near it, but I've been around it enough to know that you don't put anything on the ocean that you want to keep. <laughs> It's going to get wrecked. So, you know, okay, you want to cover aqueducts or maybe reservoirs. You got to remember that most bodies of water, even artificial ones, they're ecosystems. They're not just a tank, right? So an aqueduct, well, you can argue that it's not really an ecosystem and maybe putting a lid over it with solar panels isn't such a bad thing because at least it'll keep the water temperatures from being so high. It'll reduce the evaporation. It'll keep the oxygenation levels. So maybe fish will enjoy to live there like they did back when, you know, all of the rivers here in Ontario, they had forest canopy over top of them and they were shaded and the oxygen content was really high and you had giant fish jumping out of the water and the native people thrived on, on the, the fishery that they had. And then we cut down all the trees for farming and then all of a sudden the oxygen contents went down. The only thing you could, you know, it's, uh, you know, not the best idea. So the, the, I like the idea of agrovoltaics actually, where if you're gonna put, um, solar panels over arable land rather than on roofs and so on that you do them in a smart way where you where the farmer gets two crops one of electricity and the other of whatever plant matter so for instance it, my, i own a farm uh and i lease the fields to my neighbor who uh, grows a forage crop on those uh on those fields and uh, if we were smart and maybe a little richer we would put solar panels on top of the uh the hay field and if we could figure out a way to ensure that he could harvest uh, still and the panels weren't in the way. And by so doing, what we would do is we would shade them from the summer sun that makes them go dormant, you know, because the hay crop that feeds cattle in the heat of the summer here, it goes dormant. It doesn't grow. It only grows in the spring and the fall. In the summer, the heat is too intense. And as a consequence, the lack of water uh, stunts the growth and most of the grasses go dormant. And uh, you can prevent that if you have partial shade. So the solar panels actually, you know, you get two crops in one, it's a great idea. Perfect, because the last subject on the ocean is what can, we, what can we invent in the ocean? Because I have this theory that there are so many secrets in the ocean that are not yet discovered. There has to be many things we can do or materials, biology. I mean, we find creatures every year that we didn't know existed, right? And there's so many things you can do in the ocean. Well, we have to be careful. We have to be careful because every time we treat an ecosystem like it's a simple input-output machine, we screw up <laughs> every time without fail. So the thing that we have to be careful about with the ocean is to respect it as an ecosystem. And in fact, it's the largest and most important ecosystem on earth way more important than what's on land. So um, we shouldn't invent the ocean, we, maybe, maybe just use it as the best as we can then, or. Well, we, we, what I mean by that is that there are people that we created this giant problem by geoengineering ourselves into climate change. And there are people that want to geoengineer us back out of it by doing things like seeding the ocean with iron which will cause, you know, whatever plankton blooms and then the plankton will die and sink to the bottom of the ocean and crank up the natural sequestration rate. And it sounds great. And it sounds too good to be true because it is. <laughs> it's too good to be true. So I'm fundamentally skeptical of the following things related to the ocean. Ocean fertilization, fundamentally skeptical of that. Fundamentally skeptical about the problem of 
microplastics. I don't think microplastics are the kind of problem that people are turning it into. The other thing that I'm fundamentally skeptical about with respect to the oceans is the notion of mining these manganese nodules in the deep oceans. Uh, that keeps rearing its ugly head and, and has since the 1960s. There was an exploratory mining campaign that happened in the 80s sometime where they vacuumed up a bunch of these nodules and they ground them up and they made some nickel and, and manganese and cobalt and so on out of them. Uh, it's not a good idea. It's the deep seabed is an ecosystem. It, it, things that you can't see tend to be hidden uh you know what i mean by industry and then they generate giant problems because nobody's looking it's not a good idea i don't i think we should leave those nodules alone and, and respect the international rights of uh uh the ocean and not exploit it for mining and that's kind of it I, i'm i'm not a biologist i'm i'm not a um I'm not an ecosystems guy who understands those things at a very high level. So I can't really talk to you about what we could do as far as harvesting or ocean organisms for food or, or that sort of thing. There's lots of people I know who do know those things. I don't know. Well, is there is there any resources in terms of that we need for batteries, factories that you kind of hope we can just grab out of space and put down or is yeah that totally... yeah actually actually something has come to my attention recently and uh, I. I unfortunately I can't talk about it, but there's something in the ocean. And it's not lithium. <laughs> it's not lithium. There's something in the ocean uh, that uh, has some value, and I'm working with a bunch of guys to figure out whether or not we can make a value proposition out of it. But it's in stealth right now, so I can't talk about it. But yeah, there are things in the ocean. The problem with the ocean is that everything in the ocean is, with the exception of a few things, is dilute. Okay, and the things that are concentrated in the ocean, people think have no value. So the things that are dilute, you're fighting entropy. It's like saying, okay, I'm going to collect CO2 from the atmosphere. Well, that's stupid. Why don't you collect it from a flu where it's at a thousand times the concentration? Thermodynamics says that'll be easier. And it's the same with lithium, as an example. You know, there's a tiny amount of lithium in uh, lithium concentration in the ocean, but because the oceans are so giant, the mass is enormous, right? I mean, it's a giant it's enough lithium to last us forever and ever. Uh, but it's a very dilute, so it takes a lot of energy to collect it. But there are lithium brines all over the world that have thousands of times tens of thousands of times as much lithium in them so those are the resources that make sense to exploit but yeah there there's there's something in the ocean it can be turned into something valuable we're working on it can't talk about it yet but but i was actually curious about space right because now the cost has gone down and you have elon musk and you have jeff bezos saying that you don't, no, you don't think there's putting something... things in space is still super expensive don't let people tell you anything different they're just is this, they're, is this they're are we going yeah to you're not being wrong? honest they're not being honest. Putting stuff in space is structurally expensive until we have like a, a space elevator kind of arrangement where you can actually crawl up a cable. You know, propelling stuff out the back end of a rocket to put things in space, it's fundamentally expensive. It doesn't matter if you get the rocket back. I mean, that helps, believe me, it, but it'll drop the cost from ridiculously, absurdly, gargantuanly expensive to merely very, 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 very expensive. Oh, I mean, I think I'm biased because you watch movies like Interstellar, etc. So you think there's uh, a future you know, out? Look, no. there's there, there's all sorts of fantasy about the future, but what I what I tell people is that it's not, you know, if you're going to fantasize about things, why limit yourselves to dumb pseudo possible things like that? Why not fantasize about us tapping the zero point energy of vacuum space or something? You know. Uh, like figuring out how to use the energy inherent in the ground state of the hydrogen atom. And now you can't, okay? We don't know how, but we know that there's potential energy there if we could figure out how, but it's kind of like saying, how do we make energy out of gravity? You know, uh, not, not, not out of gravitational attraction and potential energy difference, but out of gravity itself, right? And the answer is we don't know how, maybe you could, we don't know how. So the same thing is true with zero point energy. And, you know, the people have talked about cold fusion, for instance, nobody's ever done it. it it's, there's no proof that it's ever been done. There's ways to test for it. 
the people that think they've done it haven't done it uh you know but anyway fantasize about those things <laughs> and read my article about about over unity uh and educate yourself because i'll tell you the the number of hucksters out there trying to take money from people with over unity scams is just incredible so just a, a very practical question if i called you and said Paul, I'm starting a shipping company and I have no idea what fuel I should use. You have ammonia, you have LNG, you have hydrogen, heavy fuel, and you have all the options available. What would you tell me? What do you think is the perfect fuel to decarbonize shipping? Because that seems like a very hard challenge at the moment. And it doesn't seem like anyone has a perfect answer yet, but do you have an idea on that at all? So my answer to that question is really simple. It's that, uh, you know, I would say call me back in 2040 because I have no idea what's going to decarbonize shipping. Let me explain to you why. Because I'm not just a technical person. I understand business. And the business of shipping is, number one, it's very international. They use flags of convenience to avoid regulation. Okay. And the cost per ton mile of, of freight on the ocean is 40 to 60% fuel cost, even using fossils. And everything that you can substitute for fossils is going to be more expensive and not just by a little, by a lot, okay? So it doesn't matter what you pick, whether you pick ammonia, methanol, biofuels, you know, you're not, it's not gonna be hydrogen. It's not gonna be batteries on the, on the transoceanic shipping. For, Coastal ships, you're going to use batteries, you know, uh, uh, inland waterways, uh, canals, uh, ferries, you're going to use batteries because they're cheaper. There's no question. But for um, transoceanic shipping, the answer is there's lots of options, biofuels, methanol, ammonia, all of them suck. All of them are expensive. All of them have infrastructure costs associated with them. All of them are going to drive up the cost of shipping per ton mile enormously. And so guess what? If you're the shipping industry, you're gonna use fossils and you're gonna make lots of noise about one day in the future decarbonizing. And guess when you're gonna decarbonize? When the government forces you to decarbonize and not a minute sooner. So Maersk, what did they do? They spent some money on future-proofing some expensive assets. You know, They bought some ships and they made sure that they can fuel them with this or that. Right. But they're going to run them on fossils until the government forces them to use something else for sure, because that's an economic imperative for them. But I mean, that's the best answer, because I also need to improve my cash flow in order to buy a ship. So if I can call you in, in the future, maybe that's the well, best. Well, way. you know, you know, my name, my name is Paul Martin and Paul Martin is a famous guy in Canada because he was part of the largest leveraged buyout in Canadian history. He bought Canadian steamship lines. Okay. And then he became prime minister later. But anyway, uh, I always tell people when people say, Hey, are you the Paul Martin? I say, yeah, but if I had his money, I would burn my own because I'd have plenty, right? I'd settle for only just one of those steamships that Paul Martin got, uh, you know, but anyway, the, the, that's the, uh, the issue I'd, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to have, uh, the real Paul Martin's money, but unfortunately I just have his name. That's a perfect, perfect ending, Paul. It, it was a pleasure having you on. And uh, I hope we can do this again in the future because there's many questions I would love to ask the next time. But thank you so much for taking the time. It was so much fun having you on. No, you're welcome. You asked good questions and it was fun talking with you. Have a good day. If you like this episode and the content we create, please make sure to check out our newsletter called The Bin Letter. More information is in the show notes. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel. This episode was produced by William Fransen.